You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.29, King of a Mole Hill, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and Nina is missing this week. Normally I'd just let her go, but she took a microphone and that's MSB property. Uh, I'm right here. You're back. I missed you so much. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, but an old hand at pondering the big questions. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 441 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Brace yourselves, it's a long list this week. Chris W., Sterling A.D., Jeremy O., Dan Z., John B., Janelle F., Dan T., Sean J., Liam S.C., Kevin C., Matthew C., Cajun Mike, Axel I.M.H., Soma Axe, Chad N.Y., Gary C., and Hannah R. This podcast would not be possible without your support. I also have some long overdue thank yous for people who have supported the podcast on Kofi. Kelly D., Maria R., Mikhail J., and Jess S. You are all Koopy Fruits. <laughs> Remember, dear listeners, that links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed together on our website at gundampodcast.com support. Voting for the Haiku Contest has begun. The first round of voting, which will winnow a field of more than 220 brilliant entries down to just 44 contenders, is almost done, and we'll be moving into the semifinals this coming week. Patrons, do not miss your opportunity to help choose the Grand Champion Haiku. And by the time the next episode comes out, we will be well into the climactic head-to-head finale as the top eight battle for ultimate supremacy and fabulous prizes. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 31, The Blue Team, or Ao no Butai, Part 2. For research this week, we wondered why the Double Zeta writers were so fascinated by Islam, so Nina has dug into religion in Japan generally, and Japan's historical relationship with Islam specifically. But first, let's catch up with Radio Free Shangri-La. Deep in space, a derelict gunship drifts somewhere near the moon. Hidden in the vast emptiness, a shadow passing across the pinpricks of starlight. Its armament is not death, but entertainment. Yes, entertainment. For this abandoned warship has found a new life as the secret headquarters for the rugged recording artist collective known from Earth to Jupiter as Radio Free Shangri-La. Inside, 
in what was once a briefing room for soldiers. A handsome young broadcaster calls the writing staff to order. Thank you, Nathan. I can take it from here. Happy to be of assistance, Mr. Timson. I want to start. Is something funny, Tish? Uh, no. It's just weird that you're here for the start of the meeting. It's usually you come in late with some kind of humorously timed announcement. Huh. I guess you're right. Well, anyway, I do have a few announcements. Uh, first, congratulations to everyone. Last week's cliffhanger with Guildenstern and Hector has all our fans on the edges of their seats. Yeah, hashtag Guildenstern was trending on Chirper last night. We need to milk this for all it's worth, so if any of you can think of a way to delay the big reveal for, let's say, one more week, you just let me know. Our public space mail address has been deluged with fan mail about it, too. I'll read you a few. Let's see. Uh, here we go. Dear Radio Free Shangri-La, I'm an 11-year-old girl, and I love your radio dramas so much. My commanding officer is making me learn to pilot mobile suits, and it's really hard. After a training session, the only thing that calms me down is listening to one of your shows. My favorite characters are Vale Meadows, because I want to be tough and cool, and Mr. Guildenstern, because he looks after Bethany the way no one has ever looked after me. I was so scared when I heard Mr. Hector shoot him at the end of the last episode. I don't think he is very magnificent after all. I just want you to know that if you make Mr. Guildenstern die, then I will steal a mobile suit, I will find you, and then I will... Oh. Uh, oh dear. Uh, and then... Uh. Where did an 11-year-old girl get so many violent ideas? Neo-Zeon, probably? Yeah, balance of probability there. Well, uh, there are definitely some nice ones in here. Like this one. Dear RFS, I love your work. Please, in the next episode, could you include a detailed description of Hector's feet? That's a little strange, but hey... They love our work. And this next one is specifically about Bethany. So I hope you're listening, Grace or Gloria or Petra or whatever you're calling yourself this week. Wait, where is she? Oh, uh... She's, uh... I feel like you're going to get angry when we tell you. This definitely seems like a Tim gets angry kind of fact. Please, I don't get angry. Sometimes you get a little angry. We call them Tim's temper tintrums. Would someone please just tell me why she's missing? Oh, yeah. She's on strike. Hello, operator. Connect me to the Space Pinkertons. Yes, I'll hold. Tim. Shh. I'm on the phone. Ah, uh, yes, hello. How much for your most brutal strike breakers? Oh, you don't rate them by brutality? Uh, well, can you find out which squad Wong Lee uses? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a repeat customer. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can reach me at this number. Thank you. Do you really think that's necessary? She, she's only one person. It always starts with one. Ooh, maybe you could negotiate with her. Fine, I guess I'll go talk to her. No, she's not talking to management. I'm not management. Aren't you, though? We're all equals here. I just offer guidance and leadership from time to time because of my greater experience in the field. Well, you can talk with us and we can bargain on her behalf, sort of, um, collectively? Did you all form a union? No. 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 Yes. I mean, uh, no. We just, you know, some of Bethany's demands sound kind of good, 
I guess. So a bunch of us started talking and we figured that we could all get together and reevaluate the terms of our relationship a little. Because you could probably do this whole crisis of infinite radio dramas thing without Bethany. But you definitely can't make it without all of us. <sighs> well, now I know how Nina's daughter felt when the interns revolted. Okay, what does she, what do you all want? The first, she says become a monster canned energy beverage is disgusting and wants you to bring back the funny tasting coffee. Counteroffer, I will replace the grape flavor with become a monster espresso essence coffee adjacent beverage. Second, no more bathroom vouchers. And no more auditioning every week for the characters we already play. But how will I know if you've still got it? We want a living wage. No more having to do guest spots as murder victims on true crime reenactment harrowcasts just to make ends meet. You get paid for those? I've been doing them for the exposure. What about a profit-sharing arrangement? Have we ever made a profit? No, but we might someday, and then you'll really wish you'd taken my offer when you had the chance. We're tired of you implanting pupil-tracking electrodes into our eyeballs to monitor our productivity. We want you to switch to hypoallergenic eyeball gelatin. Non-GMO, please. No more weird and for dream How will Tim Timson get out of this pickle? Find out at the next staff meeting of Radio Free Shangri-La. And now the recap for the Blue Team Part 2. Glemmy and the Blue Corps run tests on their remaining mobile suits, pushing them to the limits and making what repairs they can with no supplies to spare. While working on Ello's Gelgoog, Ello and Glemmy get to talking. Glemmy doesn't understand the idea of fighting and dying for freedom on Earth. When he sees freedom is easy to come by in space. Elo explains that for the Tareg and others fighting to free Africa, leaving would be the same as defeat. But Glemmy doesn't really get it. He sees Elo as someone like himself, someone with an illogical obsession. They refocus on their work, preparing for the Gundam attack that Glemmy is sure is coming. Not far off, Bright is concerned that the Argama hasn't heard from Judo and his team for several hours, and he asks Bichan Mondo to launch. The most important thing is for them to bring back the core fighter Ru took. When Bicha readily agrees to the mission, Mondo confusedly asks him why. After all, won't Ru get them in trouble if she comes back? Bicha doesn't think so, and anyway, since he caused this problem, he ought to fix it. Shaking his head and muttering, you've changed, man, Mondo goes along. With their mobile suits partially hidden, Judo and his group have been just outside of Gardaia, keeping watch on the town and the nearby desert. As dawn begins to lighten the horizon, they all come to the same conclusion. They aren't going to find Rue by waiting around here. Pudu is positive she can sense Rue in the town, and the serious look on her face convinces a skeptical L. They set off on foot. 
The streets of Gardaia are crowded with people. Now, in the town proper, Pudu realizes that it wasn't Rue she sensed, but Clemmy. How could she have mixed them up? She wends her way through streets and alleys, wanting to find him before he finds her. But the crowds make spotting anyone difficult. Then, the Adan, or Muslim call to prayer, plays, and the crowd suddenly stops to kneel and pray in the street. The only ones still standing are the group from the Argama, and across from them, Glemmy. He spots them at the same moment they spot him, and is about to run to them when El cries out and points at the sky. The army has arrived. Not just Gadab Jassin and the African Liberation Movement's army, but also the neo Zeon forces led by August in the Mindra. The town walls don't stand a chance against mobile suits, and Gardaya has few other defenses. Townspeople scatter and run for cover. Judo and his friends are caught out in the open, and a mobile suit in the street is about to crush them when Elo arrives in a rage. There are some things he will not do, even in pursuit of freedom, and indiscriminately killing civilians is one such line. With Elo fighting the invading mobile suit, the kids are able to run back into the desert. Glemmy comes out of cover to demand to be taken to August, who is disappointed to learn that Glemmy isn't dead. The kids head straight for their mobile suits, but as they approach the spot, it's as if their equipment has disappeared. In its place is the missing core fighter, and when they call out, Rue emerges from the cockpit. She immediately scolds them for leaving their mobile suits unattended and poorly hidden, and Elle argues that it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been looking for her. While they bicker, Eno finds their mobile suits, still there, but better hidden, all thanks to Rue. Elle apologizes, and Judo bluntly states that the Argama falls apart without Rue, but she is unmoved until it seems like they might leave without her. Their mobile suits retrieved, they are headed back to defend Gardaia, and she decides to join them. At a brief meeting with August and Jasin, Glemmy informs them of Dito's death and his intention to get revenge, and warns them that the Gundam team will arrive at any minute. Glemmy doesn't think much of Jasin or his plans, calling him King of a Molehill under his breath, before getting in a dry sun and joining the fight. The Gundam team arrives, and in the midst of the battle, Elo confronts Jasin, accusing him of being a minion of the Franks, being used by them, being just as much a collaborator as the people whose homes he's bent on raising to the ground. But Jasin justifies his actions as a strategy, and declares that a boy like Elo has no right to question him. The fight intrudes on their confrontation, as the Gundam team fight everyone and Glemmy fights the Gundam team. El struggles against Jasin, and just when he's about to bring his Heat Hawk down on the Mark II, Eno flies the base jabber between them. For a horrible, drawn-out moment, it looks as though Eno and Puru are done for. But when the base jabber crash lands, they are able to get out and slide down a dune before it explodes behind them. Judo and El fight back to back, but they are surrounded and outnumbered. The situation looks grim until finally Bicha and Mondo arrive. On seeing Rue, Bicha calls out, saying he's glad to see her and to see that she's okay. But Rue cuts to the chase. They need to form the double Zeta already. Elo shields Glemmy from a beam saber strike and is killed in the process. Once the double Zeta also takes out Jasin, Glemmy cuts and runs, and August orders his own troops to retreat. Leaderless, it is unclear what happens to the African Liberation Movement's army or the Blue Corps. Genet sits at a cafe table in the ruins of Gardaia, surrounded by rubble and smoke, covered in dirt and grime, 
He drinks wine out of a broken glass and waxes philosophical, wondering if Rue realizes this is all in vain. I can finally recognize a Gelgoog. Congratulations. It's all thanks to you. Now I see that shield shape and I'm like, oh, Gelgoog. Let's hope they never give that shield to anything else. Oh, yeah, that would really muck up my system. Did you recognize the other mobile suits deployed no. in this episode? No, I did not. <laughs> I mean, some of them looked familiar. There were a bunch of red Zaku. Weren't those Zaku? Were they not? Yes, um, kind of. <laughs> they aren't uh, they aren't the original Zaku 2. So this is where it gets a little confusing. There's a a Zaku that was modified for desert use. And then there's the desert Zaku, which is uh not that. It's a Zaku successor designed specifically for use in the desert. And so these are desert Zakus, not desert type Zakus. It sometimes feels as if this show actively hates me. <laughs> uh, it doesn't want me to ever actually understand what mobile suits are happening. Yeah. And then there's a douage, which looks a lot like a desert type dom, but isn't. Uh, and that one's piloted by Gadeb Yasin or Jasin himself. And then, of course, there's the Dreisen that Glemmy goes out in at the end. The Dreisen is pretty recognizable to me now. I do get that one. This episode had quite a few uh, animation moments that I really enjoyed, and then a few that were <laughs> uh, enjoyed because they're very silly and look ridiculous. We get the appearance of a couple of animals. Uh, we get yet another lizard, and we also get a vulture, and we know how this group likes birds. There's also a sheep in Gardaia. There's a group of sheep. It's like a mini herd. <laughs> There's three or four of them. Uh, but the scene with the lizard is especially cool because they give the illusion of shifting camera focus. At first, the lizard in the foreground is in focus and the background is blurry, but we can tell it's mobile suits. And then the foreground goes blurry and the background comes into focus. It's worth pointing out that at this point, they are still uh, literally physically photographing these cells with a camera. So it's not just the illusion of a change of focus. It probably is actually a change of focus. I'm always forgetting that and thinking they're just animating it to make it look a certain way, but that's really cool. We also get some of the fun, zany, exaggerated animation that we have come to associate with Double Zeta when Rue finds that they left their mobile suits without anybody guarding them or anything. Uh, she does sort of an angry flailing about. <laughs> she like jumps in the air and waves her arms all about very cartoonishly. And her legs sort of akimbo and <laughs> swinging around. Yeah. Yeah, akimbo. The correct word, exactly. One you rarely get the chance to use. And then once the group is reunited with her, there's this scene where Eno is in the foreground and everyone else is sort of at a distance from him, but they really stretched everyone out. Everyone's legs are mega long oh, yeah, compared yeah. to their They're bodies. They're so tall and, and skinny in that scene. Well, and just with very skinny legs, their legs are more <laughs> than 50% of their height. And <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's worth pointing out how much the cast changes from artist to artist. Like think back to like episode two, when you get that shot of Judo in his underwear in his bedroom and he's like kind of short, 
kind of stocky and just like rippling with muscles. Uh, and that is not the judo that we see in this episode. Now he's all stretched out Gumby style. They've all turned into 80s fashion models, both in dress and in physique. So those were some funny ones. Uh, some more powerful ones, I thought. During the fight between Elo and Jasin, they do the split screen in three, where the top and bottom screens are each of the two men's faces facing each other. And then the very thin middle portion of the screen is sort of a wide angle shot of the two mobile suits facing each other. Mm. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. There's a couple of moments in the battle where we see the mobile suits working in teams and they have a, a like a flow and a rhythm to the way they move and the way they move together that is reminiscent of, say, the Black Tri-Stars and their jet stream attack. But it's cool because in this one we see both Glemmy's sort of anti-Gundam alliance of uh, Yasin and Elo and himself. But you also see the Gundam team doing something similar on their end. It's very cool, um, you know, because the mobile suits are a little more uh, heterogeneous than they were for the Black Tri-Stars. It feels more visually interesting to me. It's also smoother uh, and more like, I guess, liquid in the animation. It does feel like it has a very different flow, a very different energy from a lot of other combats we've seen. Uh, there is also absolutely a moment where they use animation to fake us out and make us think that someone's going to die. This is when uh, they hit the base jabber with the, yes. the Dryson's beam tomahawk. So first, Eno intercepts an attack meant for someone else, which is almost always a death sentence in Gundam. Mm-hmm. They slow down time. They mm -hmm. have everything go pink and glowy. Pink and glowy is a classic way of showing us that somebody's going to die. They show multiple people calling out to the people who've just been hit. Eno, Pudu, like, this is just death flags everywhere. Yeah, death, yeah, yeah. death, 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 death. And then they don't die. <laughs> well, and we're just a couple of episodes removed from the, like, the breaking of the death taboo, right? After Lena dies in that hut, is anyone safe? No, no one is safe. But in this case, Eno and Pudu are both safe. And the use of all of these visual cues that fans have come to associate with death for the scene means that they were very deliberately faking us out. Totally, totally. Speaking of Eno, he's so mild-mannered, he's never in the middle of any conflict in the, in the show, or very rarely anyway. And yet, in this episode, he highlighted a pretty major difference that's emerging between some of the people in the sort of Gundam team group. And again, it's subtle, but it shows up when he and L are watching the desert and then Judo comes up. Eno and L ask each other about doing things. L asks Eno, do you think we should wait here? If we shouldn't wait here, what should we do? Later, Eno asks L, should we go with Judo and Puru? Judo just tells them. Judo says, I'm going. <laughs> and you can come with or not. But he's not asking questions. He's just going. Which is the same mentality that Rue has. And Bicha and Mondo, I don't know if you've included them in this schema, but Bicha and Mondo also discuss what to do, but only with each other. Yeah, absolutely. I thought when you said Eno is rarely in the middle of a conflict, you were going to point out how he tries to play peacemaker when they reunite with Rue. So Him does, and Judo both. Yeah, I was going to say Judo definitely... It's very funny to me that 
Rue just cannot help herself. No. She, she is incapable of being gracious. And like, she's glad that they came to find her. Yeah. But she could never possibly admit it. And for her part, I think Elle initially was really glad to see Rue. And then Rue's attitude put her off. And so she's like, fine, if you're going to be like that, I'm going to say we're only here for the core <laughs> fighter. Elle even tries to be conciliatory after she learns that Rue buried their Gundams for them. Right, she apologizes. We yeah. almost never see anybody apologize in this darn show. Everyone is doing this thing that you do in arguments where you sort of give ground to the other person, even when you don't really think that they're in the right, as a sign of goodwill and friendliness. Right. Because it's more important to repair the relationship than it is to be in the right. It's, it's conciliatory. So they're all giving Rue a little bit. In fact, they're actually giving Rue quite a lot. Um, they're saying, you know, we do need you. We're so sorry. Come back. Judo just says explicitly, the argument doesn't really work without you. We did come for you. It wasn't just for the core fighter. And what Rue is supposed to do here is to uh, return the favor, to give a little on her side as well. But instead, she just takes everything they're giving her. And she's like, yeah. You do need me. I am great. I'm not even certain that she goes that far. That at least would indicate an acceptance of their words. <laughs> it didn't really feel as if she had sort of accepted their apologies until the point where it looked like they might leave her behind because they're all going to go launch and defend Gardaia. And then she's like, oh, okay, I'll come too, I guess. <laughs> so you're saying she doesn't even want to make peace on her terms. She's just not ready for there to be peace yet. Um, what am I saying? I suppose what I'm saying is that, given her druthers, Rue would have drawn out that whole process even more and extracted from them even more apologies and admissions of how great she is. She wants them to beg her to come back. And they're not quite at that point yet. And so I think she would have drawn it out longer if she could have done. She accepted what reconciliation she received when it looked like they might just leave her behind again. <laughs> And I think she came very close to making the mistake of, of demanding too much, pushing it too far. Yes. You mentioned Bicha and Mondo, and their little interaction was fascinating to me. I summed mm -hmm. it up in my notes as, you've changed, man. What happened to you, Bicha? You used to be cool. Well, <laughs> but he's still got some of the old Bicha, right? On the one hand, he admits, I created this problem, so I should fix it. Mondo is concerned that Rue will get them into trouble if and when she comes back. Bicha is looking at it as like, well, she deserted under fire. I'm not sure anything she says about us is going to change those mm -hmm. fundamental facts. And so I think we're okay. But also I feel sort of responsible for this problem. And, and we're stuck here. We're stuck on the Argama. We need to make this work. But then once they're off the ship, he says... And you want to go back to space, right? <laughs> we need to stick it out. Yep. We need to endure and do these unpleasant things long enough for them to take us back into space. I want to focus on this conversation, actually, because there's a couple of things that I think it reveals. First is a pretty remarkable change from the way Beecha and Mondo were before they came down to Earth, when they actually told Bright, yeah, we're actually thinking about staying on Earth. We might desert the Argama as soon as we get down there. And Bright is like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, clearly Earth is not what they expected. <laughs> yeah. All the sand and the heat and the people trying to kill them. The constant warfare. Yeah. So they want to go home. They want to go back to what's familiar to them. And that feels like a natural progression for those characters. 
The other thing I want to point out, though, is something about the writing. Because if you pay close attention to the prior episode, specifically to the narration at the beginning when Judo is explaining why Ryu deserted, that episode makes real explicit that the reason Ryu deserted was not just because she got into a fight with Beach and Mondo, but because they tried to use her as a human shield. And, you know, that's very understandable. Whomst among us would not run away from people who tried to use us as a human shield? But in this episode, the way Beecha talks about it, he says, Rue ran away because I was running my mouth too much. He describes it as the result of their long-standing tension. And I suspect that may be because the writers have slightly different ideas about the reasons behind Rue's runaway. Normally, when we get two episodes in a row that are like a, a part one, part two combo, they're written by the same person, but that was not the case here. So... The episode in which Rue ran away was written by Kamata. The prior Blue Team episode was written by Suzuki. And then this one was written by Kamata again. I would agree with you about the different visions, except that it seems as if in this episode, Mondo thinks that it's the human shield thing. Because how else would Rue coming back and talking about what happened to get them into trouble? If she comes back and describes like, well, but we've been arguing all the time. Bright is going to be like, grow up. What are you talking about? (laughs) Who cares? Yeah. If she comes back and says, well, on the battlefield, he snatched the core fighter out of the air and used me as a human shield against Glemmy Toto, that might get them into some trouble. Yeah. I think there's disagreement even between Beach and Mondo about what exactly they did that contributed to Rue leaving. I thought that Mondo was not talking about the reason she left, but the danger to them if she returned that she might reveal their despicable behavior to the world. The other thing about the writing in this episode that feels a little um, weird, certainly very different from what we've experienced in Double Zeta so far, but the constant use of everybody's full name, Mm. including when Glemmy is talking to Janae, and I don't know how he knows this guy's name, but he jumps up and he's like, you, Janae Coque, I know all about you. Like, how? How do you know about him? No one has ever said his last name before. But some of my favorite moments in these episodes, since you brought it up, were all the times that Gadeb says to and of Glemmy, who are you? (laughs) Am I supposed to know who Glemmy Toto is? Because I don't. How dare you? He's our staff officer. What do you make of Puru mixing up Rue and Glemmy's auras? Oh, that's so weird. I mean, there are similarities between the two of them, right? And maybe that's the point. Also, potentially, that they seem almost fated to keep running into each other. Unlike Glemmy, I don't think that's romantic. (laughs) (laughs) But they do keep running into each other all across space and in the, the most unexpected places and times. There's clearly some kind of underlying connection. I would... Suggest that all of our listeners go out, if you haven't already, and watch The Night is Short Walk On Girl, uh, um, which doesn't really have anything to do with Gundam. But <laughs> it's it does just have really to do with good. This, because uh, the main character in that is this college student who has a huge crush on one of his uh, fellow college students. And the whole time they've been in college together, he has engineered to coincidentally run into her everywhere because he wants to create the impression that their meeting uh, is, like, faded. It's not as creepy as it sounds. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lovely, charming movie. You should watch it. During this episode, Glemmy at one point says, Ah, you're obsessed. I, too, am obsessed. And I really thought he was going to say he was obsessed with Ru Luca. 
but he follows it instead with, I'm obsessed with restoring the zombie family, which, okay, I didn't get that impression from you in the past, but all right, that's where you are now. With varying degrees of subtlety and lack thereof, this episode sets up a bunch of big uh, philosophical conflicts, for lack of a better word. And the first one comes up in that conversation with Elo. Glemmy cannot understand the idea of fighting for freedom. To Glemmy's mind, freedom is just what you live out in space. Like, oh, everyone in space is free, which... Like, A, no, they aren't. Uh, well, I was going to say the total forgetfulness of history and the total privilegedness of it to be like, oh, yeah, everyone in space is free. There's just all this freedom for the taking. <laughs> like, do you not remember why we fought the Titans in the first place or why you fought the Federation in the one year war? Like, like, Glebby, who are you? What What is your status? You are a space aristocrat. What is an essential part of aristocracy? How free are all the Xeon people who are not princelings? And how can you forget that even within this series, we have seen Haman talk about how the Earth Federation is oppressing space noids and space noids are fighting for their freedom. Like, that's been the line. And he basically admits it's all a crock and not important to him. Well, he basically says in the very next line, he's like, the people will accept a dictator if it means peace. As he's looking out at Gardaia, which, I mean, that combination of that line and that visual is very significant. And that people crave a strong leader. And given the rise of fascism at various times in history, including now, clearly there are a significant number of people who feel that way. But especially to to hear this from a like young white aristocratic man, of course he thinks that. <laughs> Whereas we have from Elo this idea that makes no sense to Glemmy of a humanity, of a society that is intrinsically connected to place, as well as the fact that Elo is talking about being colonized and indigenous people being pushed out by colonizers has happened over so many different places and so many different periods of history. And like, Glemmy says, why fight when you could just go someplace else? He cannot understand why this place is so important to these people, which again, kind of reveals the absurdity of the whole Neo-Zeon thing. None of them care about Earth. They don't actually care about the planet. They don't feel any tie to it, any connection, any value. It's a bargaining chip. It's a... <laughs> it's a trophy. They just want to win it and have it. And they don't care what condition it's in when they get it. Which, you know, is exactly the situation that God Abyasin is in. Right. And then from... Elo, we get sort of the conflict from within the, the freedom movement. He is willing to fight and die for freedom, but there are things he's not willing to do. There are actions that he could take that he feels would invalidate the morality of their struggle. And he points this out multiple times, the raising of Gardaia to him and the killing of all these civilians in the process, including children, means that they have lost sight of the true struggle. Whereas we have got to point out explicitly that he sees the entire town as collaborators. And so he is making an example of them. He uses the language of purity and of pollution. He says these people have been soiled by the grime of Frankish hands. But the episode is clear to make Elo very sympathetic. And Gadeb Yasin is, I think, presented as a, a bloodthirsty, glory-hungry hypocrite. Ultimately, 
a useful tool for NeoZeon, which turns out, as Ello well observes, to be just another foreign power exploiting internal divisions in order to seize control of Gardaia and of the whole area. Yeah, the place of this conflict in the broader conflict is so poignant in this episode and so sad. When the forces arrive, it's very clear that they completely overpower this city, but they do not even attempt a bloodless takeover. They could probably roll up and be like, we have you surrounded, we have all this and that and the other, surrender peacefully, da-da-da-da. They're not interested in that. They want to kill everyone. They want to destroy everything. Ah, but for all the anti-Frank rhetoric, for all the language of pollution, corruption, and collaboration, the only things that we see them destroying, the only people we see them killing, are the locals and the above-ground old city. There's no indication of any damage done to the underground city, and we know from Gidon explicitly he wants to seize the underground city intact and use it as a base. So none of the damage is being done to the Frankish settlers or their community. It's all being done to the presumably poorer, more marginalized local people. And it's just another proxy conflict being manipulated by people who don't really care about this place or the people in it. August admits he's not just interested in taking a base for Neo Zeon, he's interested in taking a base for himself. Everyone is always jockeying for position within the Neo Zeon military. It's never just about the cause, it's always about personal enrichment, personal power. It occurred to me when Rue says you shouldn't meddle in an ethnic conflict lightly. We have yet to see the freedom fighters engage with the quote-unquote real enemy, right? Because the real enemy should be, what, the Federation or some sort of colonial power or colonial authority. We've only seen them fight Neozeon and Eug. Where is their real enemy? This whole thing feels like a distraction, and what do they get for it? Dead leaders, dead soldiers, dead civilians, a town in ruins, no progress toward anything, no progress toward freedom or a base or... And to Glemmy, this whole conflict feels small and pointless. That's, I think, what he's getting at when he calls uh, Gadeb the king of a molehill. And he says that if you're going to struggle and strive and risk your life, you should do it for something bigger. But it feels so patronizing coming from Glemmy, because what does Glemmy want? Glemmy wants the aggrandizement of his own family as aristocrats and rulers of humanity. What does he know about fighting for freedom? They're fighting for self-determination. Yeah, what a molehill. I have much more sympathy for them and the way in which they're being used as pawns in this galactic conflict than I do like criticism for them of not dreaming quote-unquote big enough. And Elo tries to explain this to Gadeb. Elo tries to explain you know, these, the foreigners from space, do not understand. I think he specifically says they don't understand the heart of the desert or the desert in our hearts or something like that. They don't understand how a place can be a people, can be intrinsic to them in that way. And that makes them very ready to use this conflict for their own ends. When Gadeb here has invited Neozeon in, so that they can help him, so they can give him weapons and mobile suits in order to uh, dispense with the local Franks. But there's no reason to believe that Neozeon is going to leave. And in fact, they have no intention of doing so. And the way they all retreat when the tides turn in the battle just goes to show how little they care about any of this. 
Glemmy is like, oh, I guess I couldn't avenge that guy. Sorry, dude. I'll try to get around to it later. <laughs> August is like, oh, this didn't work out. Retreat. Like Janae says, because Double Zeta is all about just telling us <laughs> what the story is about. War is the death of civilization. Do you understand this is all in vain? There's that earlier conversation between Glemmy and Janae. Oh, where yeah. They... They try to have a commiseration drink together, and it lasts about a sip before they're punching each other again. But Clemmy has this line as he's leaving this conversation where he says, greatness lies in the actions that one takes to become great. And then the first action he takes after he says this is that he finishes, he, he like chugs his wine, and then he throws the glass over his shoulder so it shatters on the ground. And what a perfect period on the end of that sentence because it shows us so clearly that Glemmy thinks because of his aristocratic upbringing presumably that he is so great that he is above all of this and he has no concern whatsoever for casual destruction. If we go back even earlier I think Genet really encapsulates one of the other big philosophical questions of this episode and potentially this arc which is, is life serious or absurd? Mm. Because Glemmy sits down with him and says, oh, no, we should be able to have a drink. You know, we've, we've both been rejected in love by the same woman. Surely we can commiserate together. And Janae, when he realizes that, oh, you also have a thing for Ruluca, he starts laughing. And Glemmy says, love is honorable. And he gets so mad at Janae laughing that he punches him out of his seat. But it is absurd. It's hilarious that these two random guys in the middle of the desert in Algeria are both pining for this space fighter pilot. <laughs> I like. Yeah, yeah. It's absurd. It's utterly absurd. And Janae at the end, sitting at the exact same table, surrounded by rubble and smoke, covered in dirt, drinking wine out of a broken glass, talking about how this is all in vain. Uh, yeah, I, he feels like a character who's meant to accentuate the absurdity here and a potential connection, of course, being that Camus, the writer and philosopher, was from Algeria. This is where he was born and raised. He was French Algerian. And famously, a lot of his writing dealt with the absurdity of life. The humans are constantly trying to find meaning in things when actually nothing has meaning. It's all a big joke. And like, I don't completely agree with Janae, we've talked before about Gundam's own position and probably part of the reason I like Gundam being that like violence is horrible, but violence is also sometimes necessary. Do I think it's all in vain? No. Did this whole episode seem to have been in vain? Yes. You know, you raise a really good point here because while there's funny moments in First Gundam and in Zeta, those are moments of comic relief in what are generally pretty serious stories. Double Zeta is the first time that Gundam has really felt absurd. And I don't think it's being absurd without purpose, without intention, without thought. Many fans describe Double Zeta as giving them a sense of tonal whiplash, of going back and forth between the absurd and the serious uh, so quickly that it, it can be unpleasant to watch. But again, I don't necessarily think that that's done unintentionally. And I personally don't think it's bad. I think the absurdism is an essential part of what Double Zeta is trying to say. 
I think it's often been commented on that there was a sense of moral clarity around, say, World War II that is decidedly missing from later conflicts. And so the waters are muddier, right? The, the justifications are more convoluted and various and inconsistent. A lot of philosophers have talked about the breakdown of the grand narratives. Um, the grand narratives being these big ideas about the nature of history and the direction of history that dominated thinking throughout huge portions of human history. You know, and grand narratives are provided by different institutions uh, by different philosophies, you know, there's a grand narrative of essentially like uh, liberal democracy expanding throughout the world and everything moving in the direction of freedom. You know, there's a grand narrative around Christianity, things like this. But in recent decades, certainly by the 1980s, the grand narratives were starting to break down. And the uh, Japanese social theorist Azuma Hiroki has written about otaku and one of his arguments is that otaku in the 80s and the 90s were turning away from these grand narratives, as was basically everybody in society, and they were looking to things like anime, to manga, to Gundam specifically, for uh, new small narratives to replace those grand narratives, but that there was also a process of the small narratives breaking down or being abandoned, and in their absence, just kind of nothing. But there was no overarching narrative. There was only the random absurdism of life. And this contrast between these two men holds up when you think about Glemmy throughout the show. Glemmy is always self-serious. The fact that Glemmy keeps getting fooled by Ruluka is hilarious. And yet all he can do is sigh and hang his head and lament the shame he brings on his family. Everything is life or death. Everything is the biggest, most serious deal. And that may be the way in which he's like Rue. Rue is fundamentally very serious. And it's the other members of the Gundam team's more madcap attitudes that really grates on Rue's nerves. That scene between Glemmy and Janae is followed by another one of those absurd coincidences, because we have this scene where uh, the two groups are both in Gardaia. They are in fact separated only by a single busy street. They cannot see each other until the Adhan, the Islamic call to prayer, goes out. And suddenly, everybody stops where they are and prostrates themselves in the middle of the street to begin praying. And the only people left standing are Glemmy on one side and Judo's group on the other side. The other thing that was funny about this scene is it echoes, I think it was in the episode of Masai's Heart, when they're flying in and a couple of them say, oh, what's that tall building? And Rue explains to the audience, that is a mosque. It is where Muslim people pray. <laughs> it's like a church. <laughs> and clearly Judo has been doing some reading in his off hours about Islam because now he recognizes the call to prayer. Right. Puru asks, what are they all doing? And he says, oh, well, that is the, the call to prayer. They're all praying. I put the call out on Twitter and someone going by the display name Egg confirmed very helpfully that the audio is correct. This is a real Adan. Uh, however, everyone's reactions to it is completely wrong. Yeah, I lived in a Muslim country for a while, predominantly Muslim country, Indonesia, uh, and heard the call to prayer multiple times a day, every day. I don't know about different practices culturally. People did not typically just like start praying in the street. I did a little bit of 
looking into this. And I did find a bunch of articles from France a couple of years back about a dispute between the Islamophobic far right in France and the Islamic community of this one town where uh, the Muslims were praying in the streets because they didn't have a mosque available to them because the city-owned facility that they had been using for a mosque was converted into a library, again, by the Islamophobic government. And so they were praying in the streets and there was a dispute about this. But I understand that to be a quite extraordinary circumstance. Right. Well, and I've seen um, actually in our old neighborhood in Brooklyn, I saw there was a very tiny mosque. And so there was spillover into the outside and like sidewalk and street area because this was maybe like the, the basement level of a brownstone, like a narrow townhouse had been converted into a mosque and it certainly wasn't big enough for the number of people going there. And so I did see some people praying out in the street as well. But that's highly unusual. Would probably not be the case in this like majority Muslim town of right. Godiah. I feel certain in one or another of the flyovers of the town, we've even seen the mosque from the air. I'm sure there's more than one mosque too. Although some of the details are uh, wrong, <laughs> these various moments do kind of highlight that someone on the writing team had a fascination with Islam, like a curiosity about it, an interest. And I found myself wondering if this was just due to events in the region or if Japan had sent peacekeeping forces to North Africa or the Middle East, because while they do have the... Um, small self-defense force. They've definitely sent parts of the self-defense force on UN missions before. And while Islam is very widespread in North Africa and West Africa, and that's where the Gundam team happens to be, there's no particular reason why they would be obliged to include Islam. Zeta traveled to Africa and certainly didn't. So this is a conscious decision. This is important to the writers for some reason. I wish we could be certain how well they understood the Islamic practice and the strictures around the prayer. Because one thing that this tells us about Gadeb Yasin, and might intentionally or unintentionally be telling us that, is that he's not very devout. Because his forces do not pray at the prayer time. They, in fact, attack the town while the town is praying. And the obligation to perform these prayers extends even to soldiers even to soldiers in dangerous situations. And so it would certainly have delayed Gadeb's attack if it was important to him. I did feel a bit uncomfortable with the degree to which the show seems to treat the people of the town as set dressing. You mentioned the busy street separating Glemmy from our Gundam team, and they render all the crowd in this like flat taupe. They don't even look like people anymore. And Gundam has done this in crowd scenes before, where a particular actor is meant to really pop and the other characters are supposed to sort of fade into the background. But when they've done it in the past, at least every time I can remember, it hasn't been like flat monotone. It's been a sort of like washed out watercolor look. Like they did this on side six in first Gundam when Amuro spots his dad uh, in the bookstore across the street. And they did it in uh, Hong Kong when four is wandering around after running away. In none of those do they make such a big deal out of the, like, difference between our main characters and the local population. There's a certain amount of kind of exotification happening. And the people of Gardaia are very much pawns for everybody. Like, no one 
involved in this conflict. No character is from the above-ground portion of Gardaia. Genet is a Frank from underground. Elo is the like most sympathetic to them, but it's clear that Elo is not actually from Gardaia. Neither is Gadeb Yasin and his whole force. The Gundam team and the Neo Zeon people certainly are not. Right. Yeah, by the end of this episode, I mostly felt angry. And now Nina's research on religion. Years ago now, when the podcast was just an idea we'd been noodling with for a few months, we made a research trip to the Brooklyn Public Library, borrowing anything that we thought might be remotely relevant for our future podcast project. I made a bunch of outlines and filed them away for future use. One source stood out to me, since it was very specific and covering a topic most of my other sources barely mentioned. It was a research report about young people and religion. We've mentioned before that references to religion are rare in Gundam shows so far. And when it does appear, it's usually in the background, or its symbols are used to add to a character's development. But, as we pointed out in the talkback, several of the Africa Arc episodes of Double Zeta have made a point of bringing up religion and Islam specifically. So it seems that the outline I wrote in 2018 finally has its moment to shine. Some of this information was covered in my whirlwind review of the early 80s at the beginning of this season, but I've also fleshed it out with additional research on religion in Japan, especially how young people perceived it, related to it, or participated in it from the 1960s through the 1980s, and the history of Islam in Japan specifically. The study I read is titled Japanese Youth Confronts Religion and is from 1967. The sample has some limitations. The survey was conducted at Tokyo area universities, which means the sample is overwhelmingly highly educated and urban and skews heavily male. But these limitations align the sample with both the Gundam creative team and to some degree our Gundam protagonists. Amuro, Camille, and Judo are all young men who grew up in cities, and Amuro and Camille certainly seemed, due to their education, upbringing, and connections, to be college-bound before the war derailed the expected progression of their lives. What the study reveals is deeply conflicted, ambivalent feelings toward religion. These young people perceived being religious as an indication of personal failings, that religion was unnecessary for a sufficiently strong or self-confident person, and that it might even make people weak, encouraging them to look outside of themselves for a solution to their problems. On a personal or individual level, religion was only necessary, only served a purpose, for a person who was dissatisfied, sad, unhealthy, hopeless, poor, or otherwise suffering or afflicted. The students surveyed frequently characterized religious people as poor, weak, stupid, unambitious, or boring. In many of these statements is an implicit acknowledgement that religion is a comfort to people, but coupled with the judgment that to need comfort implies at best bad luck and at worst failure. This view is pretty utilitarian, and demonstrates a valorization of self-sufficiency and stigma of, or even conflation of, misfortune, bad character, and failure. There were more explicitly identified personal benefits to religion. Not only that it was an encouragement and support, a balm to loneliness, emptiness, anxiety, and isolation, but also that it could instill peace of mind, heart, and soul. Religion was seen as giving meaning to life and clarifying the purpose of existence. Some of the respondents expressed envy of the peace and tranquility of religious persons, 
even as they disdained religion itself. They could acknowledge the personal benefits of religious belief and practice, but competitive young people felt that to need or desire these things also demonstrated weakness. This same deeply conflicted view of religion is borne out in some contemporary studies as well. Correlation is, of course, not causation, but some of these attitudes, some of the characterizations of the type of person who is religious, are reflected in actual studies about religious participation in Japan. Studies show that a Japanese person is more likely to be involved in religion if they are sick, unemployed, or have fewer years of education. And there's a negative correlation between household income and involvement in religion. That is all very personal, about religion and the individual. But the survey respondents also talked about religion in society. Religion was viewed as emotional, subjective, and personal, inherently vague, frequently contradictory, and confusing. Unclear and unexplainable, religion was quote-unquote old-fashioned, existing in contradiction to science and reason and not suited to the modern scientific age. The utilitarian attitude I mentioned before combines with these ideas to form a view of religion as an escape or evasion from reality, selfish escapism, with no connection to the real world or to solving real-world problems, impractical and irrelevant. Yet this same cohort expressed the view that everyone should study religion, and that religion seemed like a good way of instilling morality, discipline, and self-improvement in people. In perhaps one of the most circular of these conflicting opinions, religion was seen as promoting peace in the world, but that peacetime and stability rendered religion unnecessary. This conflict, this tension, makes a lot more sense when we look back at the recent history of religion in Japan. The end of state religion and the revocation of the emperor's divinity led to a collapse of religious belief, part and parcel to the loss, reevaluation, and rebuilding of Japanese self-identity in the aftermath of World War II. The loss itself and the widespread feeling that established institutions had betrayed the people of Japan led to a loss of confidence in established religions and established moral and ethical frameworks. It began a period of significant social, economic, and political upheaval which leads directly into the emergence of the new religions in the late 50s and into the 60s. Most of these are cults or sects of pre-existing religious or philosophical beliefs, including Shinto, Buddhism, Christianity, Neo-Confucianism, but they're all different enough and new enough to avoid association with older, quote-unquote, untrustworthy institutions. New religions were also fueled by urbanization. New migrants to the cities, quote, found themselves isolated and adrift, and involvement in new religions offered social support and a sense of community. These religions focused on helping individuals with everyday life in the modern world, promising worldly benefits like personal happiness, health, wealth, and peace. Most had no specific doctrine and simple rituals, making them easy to join and participate in. Although the contemporary image of a member of a new religion is a middle-aged woman, from the 60s through the 80s, new religions were heavily associated with young people, Religious participation was an expression of individuality, a personal choice rather than a social obligation, and an exercise of one of the rights newly enshrined in the post-war constitution. The religions that emerged in the 70s and 80s were simply called the new new religions, and were different in that they emphasized the approaching end times and promised followers the ability to survive the apocalypse. The 70s in particular saw a lot of apocalyptic thinking in popular culture. For example, two of the top-selling books of 1973 were Nosu Toradamasu no Daiyogen, Prophecies of Nostradamus, and 
Nihon Shinbotsu, or Japan Sinks. And yes, it's that Japan Sinks, the one that's been made into several movies, a live-action TV show, and an anime. Both of these books are about apocalyptic, natural, and man-made disasters. 1980s Japan, marked by the excesses of the bubble economy, was also a time of interest in the spiritual and supernatural, including divination, channeling of the spirits of the dead, mysticism, magic, fortune-telling, and the occult. One of the most notorious products of the 1980s religion boom was Aum Shinrikyo, which we will probably need to devote its own research piece to at some point, maybe when Gundam gets to the 90s, since they are most well-known for their deadly 1995 sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway. Surveys from the 1970s and the 1990s show that at the same time new religions were emerging, many of the negative perceptions and stigma associated with religion persisted. There was an increasing distrust of religious leaders and a preference for secularization of public life. For example, the majority of young people felt that street preaching should be illegal. Organized religion was associated with repressive governments, social violence, and foreignness. It was a threat to personal freedom. There appears a strong distinction between organized religion as bad and personal faith, which was actually viewed positively. This highlights one of several difficulties in researching religious practice in modern Japan. Because of this distinction between personal belief and membership or participation in organized religion, the way questions are phrased has a huge effect on whether a Japanese person would describe themselves as religious. According to one source, most describe themselves as not religious, but are not necessarily atheists. They quote, will not deny the existence of that something which they cannot express and which no one can explain to them. There is widespread participation in festivals and rituals rooted in religion, but over time, these have largely been rendered cultural practices. And for many Japanese people, they have no religious significance. Finally, most of the religions practiced in Japan are non-exclusive. They do not require adherence to only practice that one religion, which is why in contemporary Japan, 85% of people consider themselves adherents of Shinto and 73% adherents of Buddhism. Islam's history in Japan is fairly short, with isolated records of contact prior to the opening of the country in 1853. One candidate for the earliest recorded contact is in the works of Persian cartographer Ibn Kordadbe. The Book of Roads and Kingdoms, first published around 870 CE, describes a kingdom east of China called Wakwak that some scholars believe refers to Japan. Although other than being east of China, the description doesn't really conform with what we know about Japan at that time. For instance, he describes a country so rich in gold the inhabitants make the chains for their dogs and the collars for their monkeys of this metal, and gives their primary exports as gold and ebony. There was also contact and trade between Japan and the Hui people, an ethno-religious group of Chinese Muslims. The records of Portuguese traders mention encountering an Arab in Malacca, a state in Malaysia, in 1555, who had just arrived from living and preaching in Japan. Once the country opened, Japan would have had contact with sailors and traders from a number of predominantly Muslim countries in the region, Indonesia and Malaysia, for example. And in 1887, Japan sent a mission, including Prince Komatsu Akihito, to Constantinople to establish diplomatic relations with the Ottoman Empire. After the October Revolution in 1917, a small number of Tatar refugees from Russia and Central Asia were granted asylum in Japan. It was several hundred, but fewer than a thousand, 
and they mostly settled in major metro areas. Japan's first mosque was Kobe Mosque in 1935, funded by the local Muslim community. The Tokyo Mosque followed shortly thereafter in 1938. Different sources gave me multiple different publishing dates for the first translation of the Quran into Japanese. 1920, 1937, 1950, though notably all of these were translated from languages other than Arabic. So we were working from English, French, or German translations of the Quran. The first version translated directly from Arabic was in 1957, but had in common with the previous versions that it was translated by a non-Muslim. A Japanese translation of the Quran from Arabic by a Japanese Muslim and reviewed by Islamic scholars and authorities wasn't published until 1972. It was around the turn of the 19th century that the first documented conversion of a Japanese person to Islam occurred, although again, sources conflict on the details. One source names Aruga Bunhachiro as the first Japanese convert to Islam in 1896. He was a trader, and after years of working in India and meeting and getting to know Indian Muslims, he decided to convert. Another source gave the 1909 conversion of Yamaoka Omar, previously Yamaoka Kotaro, as the first documented. And Yamaoka was also the first Japanese person to go on the Hajj, or pilgrimage, to Mecca. Yamaoka led me to an unexpected connection. His travel was funded by the Kokuryukai, or Black Dragon Society, an ultranationalist paramilitary group, and it seems that Japanese nationalist groups had a lot of interest in Islam. We've talked before about how Japan, in the period of imperial expansion, positioned itself as a leader and liberator in Asia, that they would expel the United States and Europe and take control of the region. Many of Japan's nationalists felt they could make common cause with the world's Muslims, since both, quote, suffered under the yoke of Western hegemony and sought to defeat Western colonialism. This was hardly an altruistic impulse, it was about undermining and disrupting their enemies. And it also led them to infiltrate Chinese Muslim communities, to support Sun Yat-sen until it looked like he was effectively amassing power, and the Kokuryukai was rumored to have supported black nationalists and the Nation of Islam in the United States. Nationalist organizations funded and trained Muslim anti-colonial resistance movements in Southeast Asia, invited Muslim leaders, revolutionaries, and academics to Japan, and produced a considerable amount of academic literature about Islam throughout the 30s and 40s, promoting knowledge and understanding of their allies in the Islamic world. They also created propaganda. In one example, pieces were published in Muslim journals in Russia, India, Persia, and Turkey that claimed Japan was close to making Islam its national religion, and that the emperor was considering conversion. The first wave of this kind of propaganda came out in 1905, shortly after Japan's defeat of Russia, and continued throughout the war years. Nowadays, Islam in Japan is predominantly practiced by immigrants, although this is a change from the 1980s. In 1982, it was estimated that there were 30,000 Muslims in Japan, and half of them were native-born Japanese. One reason for this was that Japanese imperialism had brought government, military, trade, and railway personnel into contact with Muslim communities throughout Asia, and some of them converted before returning to Japan. Another reason for the more even ratio of Japanese converts to Muslim immigrants in the 1980s is that the economic boom and subsequent very low rates of unemployment fueled increasing immigration to Japan. Some of those immigrants were Muslim, some of them married Japanese women, and many of those women converted to Islam. 
What none of this entirely answers is, why did the writers for Double Zeta go out of their way to depict Islam? The interest could be very people-focused. Given the history, it's not hard to imagine that a small but very visible group of immigrants would spark broader interest in Japanese society, especially when you add the conversions of Japanese women marrying foreign-born Muslim men. There were also several famous converts who were more recent or contemporary to Double Zeta. For example, Kawauchi Kohan, also known as Kawauchi Yasunori, who was a screenwriter for Tokusatsu series and converted to Islam in 1959. Tokusatsu are live-action shows or movies that make heavy use of special effects. For example, kaiju or monster movies, and superhero serials like Kamen Rider. He was quite famous and prolific. His 1972 series, Warrior of Love Rainbow Man, is said to have inspired Nagai Go's Cutie Honey manga. And he created a tokusatsu show called Messenger of Allah in 1960, starring a young Sonny Chiba. Dewi Sukarno, whose maiden name is Nemoto Naoko, is a Japanese socialite, businesswoman, media personality, and wife of first Indonesian president Sukarno. She was a 19-year-old art student working at a hostess club in Ginza. He was 57 and on a state visit to Japan. And she converted to Islam in order to marry him in 1962. He was ousted in a coup in 67 and died just three years later, but she has continued to do socialite and media personality things. She has a cosmetics business, she travels, she does TV appearances, etc. One of Japan's most famous Muslim converts is wrestler Kanji Inoki, later Muhammad Hussein Inoki, and better known by his stage name, Antonio Inoki. He also worked as a promoter and a politician, and among other accomplishments, he successfully negotiated with Saddam Hussein for the release of Japanese hostages just before the Gulf War broke out. It was during this visit to Iraq in 1990 that he converted, which rules him out of being an inspiration here, but it was too interesting not to include. In a funny coincidence, before Inoki converted, long before, he fought an exhibition match with Muhammad Ali, another famous convert to Islam, uh, in what is one of kind of, depending on how you look at it, one of the first mixed martial arts matches in modern history. Another possible reason the writers included Islam in these episodes? From the Japanese perspective, there is a clear connection between Islam and anti-colonialism. And what is the Africa arc about if not fighting colonialism? We've noted that Double Zeta presents a series of dichotomies, old-fashioned versus modern, technology versus community or connection, War versus peace. And religion fits well into this aspect of the story. Young people consider it old-fashioned, but it provides community and connection in a world where technology and modernity are being blamed for widespread feelings of alienation. There is an element of exoticization, a fascination both with the perceived foreignness of Islam itself and with the idea of being religious in a way that is central to your life, that shapes your life rather than being casual or incidental. Ultimately, I think it's some combination. Historical associations, fascination with religious life, interest in what religion represents to humanity, all bringing us these odd little educational moments in the midst of an otherwise irreligious series. Next time on episode 3.30, The Last Days of August. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 32 and... Obligatory Beach episode. 
Children should be seen and not heard. Neozabi. Well, I didn't vote for you. Cold sleep. Girls under glass. Behind every successful boy pilot are several girl pilots vying for his attention. Astanaji battles entropy. That good animation. And the most important component is the human heart. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Gundam spends too much time focusing on these characters and their trivial emotions. Mecha should go back to its roots. Give us more scenes where someone opens up a panel on a mobile suit and it's just stuffed full of cables and massive hydraulic cylinders. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. is being attacked by Gadem. And then sort of... Uh, Gad- Gadeb. Gadeb? Yeah. I might have been clearing my throat during Remember. Okay. I mean, you know I agree with you. <laughs> Sorry, I just talked a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, you did. Well, and you, and, uh, and you, you put a period on it at the end. I don't know if there's anything I could say in response to that. Oh. No, it's not. It's not a bad thing. I have to go check an author's name so that I can reference him accurately. I didn't realize we'd come up Did to this. Do you want to check it here? No, I have the book. Oh, okay. At the end of this episode, I was thinking that it would probably be pretty fun to share a drink with Jeanet at some point. He seems like a he seems like a fun fellow. I also think Jeanet seems pretty pretty fun, all things considered. I liked the hypocrisy of his, like, Glemmy, you can't think so much of yourself. <laughs> You're the one who called yourself a genius. I like to spit about the artist's curse. Yeah. Too many romances and too many dreams. And I follow enough artists on Twitter to know that sitting around all day, thinking and talking about art, but never drawing anything, is a very normal part of the artist's lifestyle. Who, um... I already made a joke. That, oh, that one's mine. Oh, that one's yours? Yeah. I just love that bit in uh, Blue Team Part 2 where they crack open the Gelgoog's knee and it's just got all those giant cables going around inside of it. 
It's like the 80s version of the giant computers mm. from earlier sci-fi. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is what we thought technology was going to be like in the future. Mm -hmm.